If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and take it out and turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. John chapter 16. You'll see the graphic behind me, and you've seen it most Sundays for the little over a year, that you may have life. Um, I hope that by now it's become very evident and clear that that is exactly what this uh, book is about. The book of John, um, the things that Jesus did, but the way that John communicates them specifically are geared toward helping, helping us understand, and anyone that reads John understand, and hopefully anyone that hears me preach John understands, that John's goal is simply this, that his hearers, his readers, would understand what it means to truly be alive. <laughs> To walk with Jesus, to understand not just salvation, but also as far as discipleship goes, to truly be living, to, to do away with the facade of, of life that this world proposes, when in really the world proposes nothing but meaningless vanity, death and decay. But to understand that in the Bible, in God's word, in John specifically, we see what it truly means to be alive, made alive by Christ. Uh, today we're looking at a, a unique passage, John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. The Holy Spirit is, is something, uh, he's something that I have noticed just in our culture. Um, he is unfortunately the often neglected person of the Trinity. And I talked about that a moment ago with our children, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, Holy Spirit was the one that they had the hardest time uh, with. There's a reason for that because I think that he is the one that we talk about the least. Uh, notice I keep using the pronoun he uh, because he is a person, not an it. I know Spirit kind of throws us off because that's kind of a neutral noun. But the Holy Spirit is God. He is a person. He is God. And he is it is that the church perhaps most ought to be most acquainted with. Uh, we think a lot about Jesus. We think a lot about uh, the Son, the Father. But who is the person of God that we spend the most time with? The Spirit, right? So maybe today something we need to understand is that He is someone we need to be closely and nearly acquainted with. I want you to keep that in your mind. You know, God is uh, three persons and yet He is one God. Each person is magnificent. We know the Father is the designer, the planner. He is the ultimate authority. The Son, the Bible tells us, is the agent of creation. The Father spoke creation and the Son uh, accomplished creation. So He is the, the powerful outworking of the Father's plan. Uh, the Son accomplished salvation. We talk a lot about that. That's why there's a cross behind me in the middle of our sanctuary because that is the central figure of our faith that he accomplished salvation for us. He defeated death. John 1.1 says that he is the word of God. So he is the actual going out and doing that is God. Father is planner, ultimate authority. Son is the one that goes and gets it done. But the spirit, he is a little bit different. The Bible calls him the paraclete, which can be translated as advocate or counselor. He warns, he convicts, he strengthens, he empowers. And so my aim this morning is going to be this, that we would walk out of this place understanding how vital his daily ministry is to your walk with Jesus. All right? We've got to know him. We've got to understand his daily ministry. So let's do that this morning. John 16. We're going to really look at verse 4 through 15, but only the second half of verse 4. Uh, it kind of, I think, belongs in a new uh, paragraph, okay? John 16, verses 4 through 15. It'll be on the screen behind me. Let's look together. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there's some background information. If you're not usually with us on Sunday mornings, we have to understand kind of where this fits into the context of where we are in John. Uh, So a lot of things are kind of leading up to this point. Uh, Just a few hours before this takes place, they're in the upper room. They're having the Last Supper. Uh, Judas has stormed out of the room because he's going to betray Jesus. And so you have to assume that he's on his way to the authorities to rat Jesus out. And so uh, there's a lot of things that are happening. Now, right after Judas leaves, Jesus tells his disciples, guys, I'm leaving. And where I'm going this time, you can't come with me which we've talked about how heavy that would weigh on their hearts because they're master of three years they've dropped everything in life and wanted to follow him and suddenly he says i'm out of here and this time you can't come with me and yet what he says we saw in chapter 15 he talks about we, we, this is a famous passage one that we know a lot about abide in me apart from me you can do nothing i'm divine you are the branches what jesus says in that passage is to remain in me even after i'm gone he says the way that you can do that i'm not going to be here but the way that you can continue to abide in me is to abide in my spirit he will come to you the spirit is the way now it won't be easy we looked at that last week um, at the, the end of chapter 15 and also the first four verses of chapter 16 and you can see it even in the first couple of verses of chapter 16 that the reason it won't be easy is because what jesus said is that the world will hate you because it hated me right the world is going to reject you it's going to mean that they're going to be tempted to fall away which is what we see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16 and what we saw last week is what that looks like right that they will their social lives will fall apart they will be considered dead if they follow jesus outcasted from their civilizations they would literally i talked about this last week throw a funeral for them because they've walked away from god in their opinion if they follow jesus they are dead to us they mourn their loss you can't have a job in this area you just got to leave town it's a lot to lose here you'll be cast out of the synagogue and what jesus is telling them is that the world will hate you it's not going to be easy And you're going to be tempted to fall away. Your family situation, your social situation, it's going to fall apart. But he instructs them and says, hold fast. You see, now we see that the disciples reasonably are beaten down. Why? Because they're concerned. Listen, they're concerned with their circumstances, the synagogue, their families. And so Jesus is both going to rebuke that thought. He's going to seek to rebuke, but also to encourage them moments before his arrest because that's coming in just a few hours from now okay so if you're taking notes this is going to be the structure this morning 
Two themes to keep perspective in our mission, all right? Two themes to keep perspective in our mission. The first is that your mission is bigger than you, all right? Your mission is bigger than you. And certainly we're going to see this in the lives of the disciples. Two themes to keep perspective in our mission. Your mission is bigger than you. In short, what does that mean? It means that as disciples of Jesus, them and us, those guys back then, us here today, they needed to keep the main thing the main thing, all right? They needed to keep the gospel at the center of their focus. Don't be distracted by even important worldly details, which is what they're struggling with. Look at the last part of verse 4, where we started. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because, why? I was with you, okay? Jesus had been prepping them for his departure for things they did not have to worry about while he was there. Things were good while he was there. Now, it wasn't always easy, but for them it was. Jesus was the one that was being headhunted, not them. And so he's preparing them now for a time that was going to be difficult for them. I remember when uh, Shiloh was first born, our our daughter, who is the beautiful one that scurries over here every Sunday morning, um, when she was first born, I remember being a nervous wreck every time Brooke left the house with me and her alone, right? Brooke would have to go run an errand or something. You remember, Brooke? And, like, I would just be petrified because I'm like, wait a second. I don't want to get into the details, but I can't feed her, like, with my... Okay, anyway, I can't do that. And so there's, like, other things that I have to know and be able to do in order to make all this kind of work. Uh, Not to mention that I've... You know, before I had a kid, I never changed a diaper, which that's just a personal philosophy of mine. Don't give me, you know, junk about that. I'm just, it kind of freaks me out, but I'm cool with changing my own kids' diapers, all right? So all that to say, when Brooke would leave the house, she would give me instructions and she would just kind of give me a little pep talk like, hey, you got this. Now, now it's no big deal because, um, you know, I'm a pro at parenting, right? No, I'm still terrible at it a lot of the time. But uh, I remember back then when we first had our first child and she would have to go somewhere, I just remember being an anxious wreck. I'm already an anxious wreck most of the time, but in those specific situations, I was just very, very uh, anxious because G- uh, Brooke was leaving, and so it left me in a situation that it was going to be tough for me. This is what's happening in this passage. Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving, and so he's going to encourage them and say, listen guys, you got this. Not because you got this, but because I'm going to give you myself, and he's got this. A pep talk, instructions, He gives his disciples instruction for what to do next because he's leaving and he would later be crucified and then be exalted. And so they got to know what to do next. Look at verses 5 and 6. But now I'm going to him who sent me. Who's that? That's the Father. And none of you asks me, okay, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart hearts okay hearts full of sorrow what's happening here is that jesus is saying guys i'm leaving uh and instead of some of you guys asking me you know anything he says where are you going but i think that what he's saying here is that you guys aren't talking back to me you're just sulking you're just in sorrow you're pouting why aren't you dialoguing with me why aren't we having conversation now maybe what i think i think that probably what he was looking for is is loyalty all right jesus says i'm leaving you guys have an important mission i think that what he was looking for is someone to say you're right jesus we got this we're going to go and fight for you we're going to go and be your messengers to this world that's not what happened they were sulking they were in sorrow and i think that jesus is in a sense rebuking that look at chapter 11 just flip back a little bit chapter 11 verse 16 this is an earlier part of john 
But I want you to see what I think Jesus was looking for here. Remember, this is when uh, Jesus was not exactly welcome in Jerusalem, but they were going back to near Jerusalem to see uh, the, their sick friend Lazarus. The disciples are like, Jesus, we can't go back there. But look at chapter 11, verse 16. Look at Thomas's response. They're saying it's dangerous, but Thomas says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's the type of loyalty that I think Jesus is looking for here. Not sulking and sorrow, but for his disciples, his followers, to stand by him. Be his disciples, be his followers and say, Jesus, we got this. We are your guys. But that's not what he's met with. He says, why are none of you asking me, where are you going? Why aren't we having dialogue about this? Now, there's something in this passage you may look at and be like, wait a second, that kind of sounds strange. And that's that, didn't Peter just now ask Jesus, where are you going? Don't you remember? Back in chapter 13, look at it. Chapter 13, verses 36 and 37. This is right after Jesus tells them that he's leaving. Chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? It's verbatim what Jesus just said you're not asking. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. It's weird. Okay, so does Jesus struggle with short-term memory? Or is John contradicting himself in his writing? Well, no. John knew he had just written that. Let me, let me explain what this means. Okay, so maybe an hour or two had passed since that conversation, all right? Maybe an hour or two, and certainly the discussion has gone on. Goodness, we have two additional chapters between that statement by Peter and where we are now. So here's what's going on here. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 31, you don't have to look, but it even tells us that their location has changed. They've left the upper room. They're walking to the, val- uh, the Kidron Valley, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be arrested. And so the subject matter has changed since then. Jesus back then told them, I'm leaving. Peter says, where are you going? Okay, that's what's happening in that passage. But now the subject has changed. Not only is Jesus leaving, and that's what happens in chapter 13, but now Jesus has said some new things. He said, I'm leaving. And listen, people will hate you for aligning with me. But you need to tell them about me anyway. The subject's changed. It's obvious why they're not continuing to dialogue about this. They're upset. Jesus is saying, your life is going to be filled with people that despise you for aligning yourself with me. And it's no wonder that he follows that right here in chapter or verse 6. With, I'm going to paraphrase. Ever since I began to explain this to you, your hearts have been grieved. Well, there's a reason for that, right? Their hearts are grieved because they just kind of got a real bummer put in front of them. People are going to hate them for aligning themselves with Jesus And so what I want you guys to see is that they were grieved for what we would consider to be reasonable circumstances. But they were consumed with how this news would affect them and their lives. That's why they're grieved. Because they weren't thinking about loyalty to Jesus in these moments. They were thinking about how much their circumstances, this news, would affect them and their lives, their circumstances. And we see, look at verse 7 real quick. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Okay, we'll, we'll stop there for just a second. It's to your advantage. Now listen, Jesus said that because they didn't believe that, right? There's a reason that he said that. And so if we look at verse 7, we see the issue. And that's that they did not have faith that Jesus had their best interest at heart. Let's be honest about it, right? Hey guys, listen, it's for your best interest. It's for your advantage that I go away. Why would he say that? Because they didn't believe that it was for their advantage that he go away. They're doubting here. 
The disciples were sorrowful, and certainly Jesus understands that their concern is not unwarranted. And so he seeks to lift their eyes to see, very simply, that there's something going on that's greater than their circumstances. And although this isn't the main thrust of the entire passage, I think this is one way that we can identify with the disciples. Church, Christian, your call to discipleship is not about you. It's to make much of Jesus. It's simple. Your call to discipleship is not about you. It's to make much of Jesus. I'm not an anthropology expert, but I think that we must live in the most egotistical and self-centered culture in the history of mankind. We have to. I mean, I wasn't there for all those thousands of generations or whatever. It'd be hard to top this one. It's a very selfish and self-centered reality, and social media certainly doesn't help that, right? I mean, it's, it's constantly feeding self. We all know people who uh, see beautiful, and maybe this is you, you know, I think that we've all been maybe guilty of this at some point. We all know people who, who see a beautiful landscape or a skyline or a rainbow or visit Niagara Falls or they go see the Grand Canyon and they seem to be more inspired to take a selfie for Instagram or Facebook uh, likes than they're inspired to admire and worship the God who put those things there. You know what I mean? They go to a concert and they're more all about, you know, not enjoying the music, but showing other people that they were there for that thing. It's a, it's a fractured society, isn't it? That we're more absorbed with feeding self for affirmation than we are of just admiring what's around us. Guys, this world is not about you and it's not about me. And egoism doesn't just impact how we view nature or how we view some concert. It impacts how we view our discipleship. Your discipleship is not your own. It's for Jesus. It's to make much of Jesus. It's for God's glory. And so I think that's what's happening here, is that God is calling them, and he has called you to something bigger than a simple, plain, non-miraculous, earthly life where you wake up and do the same thing every day. Your life is more important than that. Why do we wake up each day with everything on our minds, our schedule, our cell phones? We wake up with all of these things that are arbitrary on our minds, except for how can I make much of Jesus today? Why is that not our first thought? It is your entire identity. And yet it doesn't get a lot of our affection, does it? Is the main thing your main thing? Make much of Jesus and show as many people the Christ as you possibly can. And I think that's what Jesus is wanting them to understand. Is that their circumstances, they may be a bummer for a while. But their discipleship is so much bigger than that and yours is too. Make much of Jesus. But we cannot do that apart from aid. Supernatural aid even. Which is the second of our instructions to keep perspective in our mission Number two, that your mission requires supernatural help. Your mission requires supernatural help. We see here that there's sorrow in the disciples, and that's the tone of the passage. And so we see that Jesus' tone is not sorrow, but it's encouragement, which is ironic, because he's the one that's about to be murdered, right? And yet he wants to encourage his disciples. He'd begun a work in the disciples' hearts, but it would be to their advantage that he went away, that he left, so that this work could continue in them and in others, which is strange. 
Just pause for a second and think about that. What Jesus is saying here, before it kind of tells them how this is going to happen, what he says is, I have to leave so that you can continue to be poured into. That would be like me saying uh, to, to my son Zion, listen son, I have to leave so that you can continue to be fed. No, it doesn't make any sense because I'm the one feeding him. He can't be fed if, if one of us is not there to feed him, right? So what Jesus is saying seems contradictory. It doesn't seem like it makes sense. I have to leave, but it's for your good because it's going to help you to be able to continue to honor me. Well, something's got to give, right? There has to be another that's coming, and that's exactly where Jesus goes next in verse 7. We'll read it again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. That word is translated helper in my translation. It may be comforter or counselor or may even be paraclete or advocate. What that word means is just that. It means all of those things. One that comes to your defense. One that comes and fights for you and with you. A counselor, an advocate, a helper. Now it's hard for them to wrap their minds around. So to understand, we first have to understand their next mission and why the helper, the spirit of God, would be so helpful in it. In context, Jesus is not just saying to go live as good Christians. In the context of this passage, he's not talking about just going and doing the good things and and living by the golden rule or whatever. What he's saying is, you are going to go and be my disciples and evangelize a lost world. This is an evangelistic passage. Jesus is talking about going and telling others about Jesus. And so in context, he's not just going to say, go and live as good Christians. The passage is about evangelism. What he's saying is this. People will hate you. They will threaten you. But I want you to evangelize them. That's hard. They're going to want you dead. I want you to tell them about Jesus and the true way of salvation. And don't be grieved. It isn't your job He says, to convict them. The helper does that. And he says, it's to your advantage. For all intents and purposes, Jesus did not have a very effective evangelistic ministry on earth. I want you to think about what I just said. I know that sounds crazy, okay? For all intents and purposes, Jesus did not have a very effective evangelistic ministry on earth. How many followers did he really have? Twelve? Eleven? One of them kind of bailed. And then maybe a few dozen others, some Samaritans. There wasn't a whole lot of people that were really following Jesus. Maybe we could say a few hundred, but there wasn't a whole lot. And so for all intents and purposes, I'll say again, Jesus' earthly evangelistic ministry, it wasn't extremely effective, but I'll say it again. Listen, that wasn't his main job. What was his main job? To save the world from their sin. It was to go to the cross and to start a movement that could then go and gain momentum. Whose job was that? The disciples. But it was the Spirit of God's job which is the natural flow of thought. And that's Jesus' point and how he encourages his disciples and introduces them to this third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of God. And so what I'm going to tell you guys now, and this is kind of an additional part of the notes because I don't want um, to have to keep repeating it, but I want you guys to see it, that the Spirit of God does this. He completes and and finishes this work of Jesus on earth in, in a couple of different ways. The first is that the Spirit convicts the world. All right, you'll see it up there on the screen. The Spirit convicts the world now you'll notice that that word world i put in kind of quotations the reason why is because i'm not talking about the the physical planet i'm not talking about planet earth what jesus is saying when he uses the word world he's talking about people all right and now he's not talking about every person in the world he's talking about the people in the world that live in open rebellion against god people that aren't followers of jesus that's who the world is 
And so the Spirit comes and convicts the world. These are people that are in rebellion against God, that are contrasting holiness in favor of a lifestyle of sin and not following Jesus. You'll see what I mean here in verse 8. And when He comes, here it is, He will convict the world. Three ways. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. I mentioned this with the children a moment ago. This, the word convict is not like um, convict of a crime, like, like uh, uh, you are convicted of that crime. You, you are guilty of that crime. It's instead the, the feeling of guilt. Okay, so the Spirit's job is to put the feeling, this, this incurring of shame, this incurring of guilt that the hope would be to lead to repentance. And so here's the implication. The implication is that this helper, this Spirit of God, He will bring people out of, I'm going to put it in quotes again, out of the world and into the family of faith. The job of the Spirit is this, to tell people, guilt people, shame people, help them to understand they live in rebellion against God, and to bring them out of that fold into the fold of Jesus. Concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. And so next I'm going to hit on all three of those things quickly with a quick application of each one and how we see that the Spirit does this uh, in our own lives, okay? So the first is concerning sin. Look at verse 9. He says, concerning sin, so the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Okay, so one way that the Spirit convicts is in showing people that they are in a desperate state. What is that state? They are lost and dying and decaying in their souls, and they will spend eternity apart from Jesus. The world, a person who lives in rebellion against God, they cannot understand that he or she walks in darkness in need of salvation unless the Spirit exposes the need and guilt. Put it this way. For those of us that are believers, there was a time in your life when God put the burden on your soul that said, I cannot achieve heaven on my own. Okay? It's a shame feeling, a guilt feeling that I am messed up. Because that's a gift of God. It's a revelation that the Spirit puts on the lives of people to understand, I can't achieve righteousness. That's a conviction, right? And so we need to understand that conviction of sin... The way that the Spirit does this, it isn't a bad thing. It is God's grace that the Spirit convicts of sin. It's God's grace. None of us came to a saving relationship with Christ before the Spirit made your need known to you. We pray this way, don't we? God, I pray that you would bring that person to salvation. God, I pray that you would help that person to understand. Help me to understand ways that I mess up. Why do we pray that way? Because we understand it is the Spirit who convicts in such a way that draws people near the Father. And so we should continue to pray that the Spirit would convict the loss. Stop trying to uh, pray sin out of people. Don't pray sin out of people. We're not in the, in the endeavor of, of hoping people stop doing bad things. The only way that people can stop doing bad things is if the Spirit of God grabs a hold of their life and says, Come follow Jesus instead of following yourself. It's the only way we can do it. And so we pray earnestly that the Spirit would do His work. He is the one that convicts of sin. Pray that He would continue to expose not only the need of those that are lost, but to expose your need to continue to crucify your own sin. It's He that does it, right? 
And so to live a life of discipleship void of asking the Spirit's aid is absolutely foolish. You can't do that on your own. Concerning sin, I have it as B in my notes, but the second one is concerning righteousness. Verse 10. It says, concerning righteousness, because, look at this, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Okay, so I want you guys to understand what he's saying here is that the reason that the Spirit is going to convict concerning righteousness is because Jesus is saying, I will no longer be here to do it. Okay, so we need to understand, Jesus had already been doing this apparently. Uh, So what does it mean that the Spirit would continue this work? What is it? Well, why would Jesus, we see the word righteousness, and I think probably, and you should, have a positive connotation for that term. Why would the Spirit convict concerning righteousness? Isn't righteousness a good thing? Isn't something we want to be doing, righteousness? Well, it isn't righteousness as we often see it defined. Think instead about the Pharisees. You know, Jerusalem was full of, I'm going to put this in quotes, good people, all right? People that go and do what they considered good things. They were law abiders. The Pharisees were wonderful at this. And yet they were the people that Jesus would say desperately needed Jesus. The Bible says that even your good works, apart from works that honor Jesus, your good works, even the things that you consider are good, are filthy rags. I won't get into the image of what that means. It's a bad thing. All right? They're filthy rags. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's the same word for righteousness. Your acts of righteousness are not acts of righteousness. They're not good enough left to yourself. And that's the point. The point is that religious righteousness will not do. Religious righteousness just will not cut it. And that's why Jesus came. Who were his biggest enemies? The Pharisees. Because they were the religiously righteous people. And that's why he came convicting the Pharisees and the Jews of this. But here's the thing. Now, since Jesus is going to the Father, the Helper continues this work. The Counselor, the Spirit. It's the Spirit who convicts us that being religious is not the same as being in Jesus. It's just not the same. Let me be real with you guys for a second. There are people in this room that have been religious for decades that will spend eternity apart from Jesus if they don't follow Christ. In this room. Religious righteousness, it's not good enough. Being a good church person is not what it means to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. That's what it means. The Pharisees were good church people. Again, for all intents and purposes. They were religiously righteous But Jesus is calling his disciples to something different. We're not just religiously righteous. We're followers of Jesus. We don't do good for self-vanity or some other sort. We do good because it honors Jesus. I'll give you an example of this. I didn't ask him if I could do this, but I think it'd be okay because I'm sort of praising him in a sense and giving, giving him some, uh, some, some props here. Uh, one of my greatest days as your pastor was the day that I got to baptize Brother Al Broadbent. Um, it was amazing. And he is, you know, many of you guys know Al, and uh, he's doing a lot better, by the way. He's, he's still uh, doing rehabilitation, but he is, he's in good spirits, and he's doing really well, and he's being strengthened. A lot of you guys have been praying for him. But uh, the day that I baptized Brother Al was one of my favorite days as a pastor. The reason why is because I know that there is a religious deficiency in the Southern Baptist Church. Not just Spring Hill, I mean every Southern Baptist Church. 
There's a religiousness that doesn't sync up with a righteousness of being following Jesus. When another, whenever Brother Al read his testimony in the baptistry that day when I was baptizing him and when he became a believer, um, he told me whenever he walked the aisle, he said, I'm tired of playing church because that's all I've been doing. He said, I love this church. I love the people at this church. But I've always just done those things because I love people, not because I love Jesus. That He gets it. That's what it talks about. That's what it means to convict of righteousness. That when he got up there and read his testimony from the baptistry, that's what he said. He said, stop playing church and follow Jesus. Because you can be a good church person and do all the right things and have a wonderful Sunday school record and not be found in Christ. And hear me say today that if that's you, listen to the Spirit right now. Because he's doing what it says in verse 10. He's convicting of righteousness. Religious righteousness doesn't cut it. You must be found in Jesus. Stop playing church and breeding this sense of self-righteousness that we see in people like the Pharisees. And instead, submit to Christ. And listen, be in church. Read your Bible. Pray. Fellowship with believers. Join us for supporting causes like Life Choices, Pregnancy Care Center next Sunday. Join us in voting to affirm a new youth pastor. Join us in doing those beautiful, amazing, obedient things that it means to belong to the body of Christ. But do them not because you're doing religious righteousness, but because you're submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. It's different. It's different. Concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and then finally concerning judgment. Verse 11. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And we've already seen in John 7 that he healed a paralytic. That Jesus has called out the poor judgment of the world. We won't go back there and look, but the Pharisees essentially were criticizing Jesus because he healed someone on the Sabbath day. And so they said, wait a second, you're not supposed to do that. That's wrong. Jesus' rebuttal to them is, you judge poorly. You have bad judgment. Instead, you need to judge with good judgment. Basically, call what's wrong, wrong, based on good judgment, not on bad judgment. Call what's right, right, because of good judgment, not because of bad judgment. The Spirit convicts the world of their wrong and their false judgment. What the world thinks is right and wrong is terribly flawed. It's a bad standard. I'll give you an example of this. Our information of judgment, the way that we judge anything, should be informed by Scripture. Nothing else. I'll give you some examples. Your way of judging what's right or wrong should be more informed by the Bible even than your own United States law. I'm going to tell you some things that are legal in the United States. You can do these things legally. You can get absolutely plastered on alcohol if you don't drive. It's legal to do that. If you don't go out in public and make a scene, if you're in the confines of your home and you just get totally wasted, you can legally do that. Does that mean it's right? Of course not. Because the law of our government is not our law. You can have sex with anyone of age so long as it's consensual and not prostitution. You can watch pornography, totally legal. Um, You can lie to a parent or a friend. You can legally gossip or post angry, mean things on the internet. You can legally have racist thoughts. You can legally have hate in your heart for a person. All of those things are absolutely legal. Does that make them good things? Of course not. Of course not. Why? Because our law, our standard, our judgment... It's not based on anything but Scripture. The Scripture is our judge, right? 
Same thing can be said about cultural morality. Cultural morality is not the standard. That's, that's the, right now, that is the big issue in our, in, our, in our society, isn't it? We live in a culture that's constantly redefining the rules. And that's why we've got ourselves in a big mess right now. The, the things are being constantly contradicted. One of them is that you, know, you can have a, um, a, a boy, a teenage boy, that suddenly identifies as a female, and he can go and wrestle in a women's division league in high school and dominate the competition. That's ridiculous, isn't it? And we're already seeing that that's a fractured judgment. That cultural morality is not good enough to be our standard. The rules are constantly changing. Where do you stop? Somebody's going to go marry a toaster oven. I, I know that's silly, but like that's reality. That's where we are at. You can marry your pet cat. Because if you're constantly redefining the laws... You, that doesn't cut it. We have to have a fixed level of judgment, a fixed morality standard. There are cultures that think it's okay to chop somebody's hand off if they steal a skittle. Cultures that, are, that legalize prostitution, cultures that, that legalize abusing women. Does that make them right? Guys, it's, it's, it's cultures that's legal to, to murder. Hey, doggy dog world. Cultures where it's legal to kill people of a certain faith or, or persuasion. The culture is constantly, we're going to say evolving, but really devolving. It's constantly changing. And so cultural morality is not our standard. What is our standard? This doesn't change. This doesn't change. It's not going anywhere. And this has been the standard of believers for millennia. Why? Because this is God's standard. And so when Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are judging with poor judgment, judge with right judgment, that's what he's talking about is that your standards have changed. And the same is true for us. That our standard, our, what we need to root ourselves in, what we need to see as right or wrong, judgment, is not in culture, it's not in tradition. I'm going to say that again. It's not in tradition. Our standard is in what the Bible tells us to do and not do. That's our standard. And if I say anything contrary to that as your pastor, I'm in the wrong. Don't call something sin. If Jesus doesn't call it sin, don't call something righteous, okay. If Jesus calls it sin, must be in God's word. And the beauty is that Jesus did these things on earth, and the Spirit continues this work to empower the mission of Jesus' disciples. That's the power of the Spirit. He's awesome. He is wonderful. The Spirit convicts the world, secondly and finally. The Spirit guides his disciples into truth. He guides his disciples into truth. At this point, the disciples are trying to drink from the fire hydrant. <laughs> I mean, it's just rapid fire. It's neat how realistic these last moments are. They're realistic because they actually happened, okay? Remember, his impending arrest is coming. He is just feeding them information. They're drinking from a fire hydrant. They're barely getting anything, it seems. They're in sorrow. And now Jesus discerns that he is, in a sense, overwhelming the disciples, which makes sense, right? Because these are real guys. And Jesus is force-feeding them all kinds of crazy information, awesome things, but it's hard to take it all in. Which is why he says in verse 12 and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear, bear to hear them now. Yeah, you think? I mean, they're just scatterbrained. So many things coming at them. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will be a guide. 
guidance into truth for the disciples was vital. They didn't have the New Testament as we have it today. They likely were not well trained of the Old Testament. So yeah, it's pretty important that the Spirit of God guide them. The Spirit would bring to mind the teachings of Jesus. He would even aid them in several of them transmitting these teachings to us today, writing them down. We have Gospels because of several of these guys. The purpose was this, to evangelize the world. John tells us that his goal in writing was that you may have life, that you will live. Church, the Spirit does not live in you so that you can rest comfortably in your recliner and do nothing for the kingdom of God. You're equipped by Him, for Him. This is what he says next in verses 14 and 15. He... In his work, the Spirit, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is the Spirit's aim in his ministry? It's verse 14. Glorify the Son. Declare what is the Son's to his disciples. What is the Spirit's aim in ministry? The glory of God. Make much of Jesus. I think that a great daily aim for us, for you, for me, is to make your goal the goal of the Spirit of God living in you. Forsake your goals. Put them aside. They're not as important as the Spirit's goals. What is His goal? To make much of Jesus. And the best way to do this is to be gospel-centered in everything. It's to constantly be mindful of what it is that makes Jesus so wonderful. And what's that? That you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and by the blood of Jesus, He has made you right with Him. He's reconciled you. How can you make much of Jesus? Daily dwell on what Romans 1.16 tells us is the power of God, the gospel. It means when you sin, you admire the blood of Jesus for the remission of those sins. When you triumph over sin, you remember that it is because of the work of Jesus and the Spirit living in you that you have a fighting chance. That's what it means to live gospel-centered. It means to let that mentality impact your relationships as a worker, as a student, as a parent, as a son, as a daughter, as a friend. If you lack gospel conversations in your home with your children and your spouse, that's a problem. That's a problem. It's the most important relationships earthly that you have. And the most important information that you have. Why don't those things collide? Make much of him today by finally stopping the struggle against his conviction on your heart. I think that what he said, convicting of sin, convicting of righteousness, convicting of judgment is a wonderful place for us to start. Yield to those convictions. Flee sin because God hates sin. Flee religious righteousness because it isn't good enough. Don't link up your judgments in this life with what's found in this life. Link up your judgments with what the Bible tells us. And here's the thing. How can you do that if you know your Facebook friends' accounts better than you know your Bible? If you're more up-to-date on people's Instagram stories 
than you are on the story of the gospel. How do we expect to follow Jesus and honor him well and make much of him if we aren't in the word? So constantly seek him. Ask for his aid. He is your helper. Your mission is bigger than you. And your mission requires supernatural help. Recognize those things and plead to the one that can make them happen. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord, and we want to recognize at this time that we are not good enough left to ourselves. Lord, there are people in this room that have been playing church for a long time. Let today be the day that they yield, that they submit. Lord, I believe that the Spirit of God is at work. convict our hearts the way that you convict the world of sin of fake righteousness and of bad judgment or draw us near to yourself as we respond and sing it's in jesus name we pray amen